You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. To Genesis chapter 10. You know, as I was thinking about uh, our discussion this morning concerning how we as uh, families, even specifically as uh, fathers that are represented here and how we lead our families, how we can lead them into a, a greater appreciation for uh, the ethnic diversity that's around us. One way that I think uh, is, is necessary to make that step is for our kids to understand the importance of the story that we look at this morning uh, here in Genesis 10 and then specifically in Genesis chapter 11 uh, with the Tower of Babel. Uh, you know, oftentimes our kids can point out some of their favorite Bible stories. It's the stories that they hear over and over. It's the the go-to stories in the Sunday school setting, whether it's David and Goliath, where, whether it's uh, Daniel and the lion's den, uh, Abraham and Isaac, some of the, the key uh, pillars of the Old Testament that our kids would be able to run to, uh, many would probably not label the Tower of Babel as a, a story that they're uh, extremely familiar with. Most of our kids have probably heard it if you asked them, uh, but maybe not understanding the uh, the spiritual significance of what takes place in this story, but then also the uh, eschatological significance, uh, seeing that for the last time, so everything that we've been studying in the book of Genesis, um, everyone speaks the same language. Everyone is, is united around a common purpose in life uh, that, that, that for the first time gets completely divided. Uh, and, and people start going their separate ways. Now, there may have been a little bit of that before the flood. We don't have any history of that. Um, and obviously, the flood wiped away any divisions that did exist. And so after the flood, this is where families separate. Uh, and they're not brought back together in full unity until we see that in the book of Revelation, when people from all tribes, nations, and tongues are reunited around a common language and a common purpose common language meaning a spiritual language uh, that we uh, that we have uh, in the sense that we are um, saying the same things about spiritual truths and so this story is very significant I think in in we as individuals and also as our families embracing some of the things that we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks um, to to kind of review briefly and, and these summary sentences that we've been using, are very helpful in the area of review. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, our summary sentence, so to, to try to package that entire sermon into one sentence, we said, an individual's value and deserved treatment is based upon the image of God rather than the image of his ancestor, with the moral character of an individual defining him rather than his ethnic descent. So in the midst of talking about the curse that comes upon Canaan, so uh, in the midst of Ham's sin and then Noah responding to that sin and, and, and prophesying about the, the future of his boys, uh, kids and their descendants and the curse being upon Canaan, we said that ultimately an individual's value and how we should treat that person is based far more on them being created in the image of God than them being created in the image of their ancestor. So Irregardless of, of where someone descends from and who they descend from, every human being is created in the image of God, and that dictates how we treat them and how we value them. And then also, it's the moral character of an individual that defines them rather than their ethnic descent. 
So an individual should be defined by the choices and decisions that they're making, not what their ancestor did. Uh, so uh, the, the sin of Ham and, and, the, and the repercussions that are passed down to Canaan, whatever happened there specifically, should not then dictate how we should treat those that descend from Ham or from Canaan. Last week, we said to embrace the gospel is to embrace racial diversity with a goal of unity. So if, if we're really responding to the gospel, if we're truly believers in the sense that Scripture calls us to be believers, then we embrace racial diversity with a mindset, with a goal of unity. Because the purpose of the church is to tear down dividing walls of ethnicity in order to expand God's glory to all peoples. Okay, so this, this, this plays out in the conversation between Paul and Peter. So Paul enters the room. Peter has isolated himself from the Gentiles, will not eat with them because of religious ramifications that are still ingrained in him based on the way he was raised. So he's eating with Jews only. He's segregated himself, and Paul addresses it and tells Peter, your decision here, how you're acting, it's not in line with the gospel. And so our challenge last week is there any attitude or action within us towards people of other ethnic descent that would not be in line with the gospel? Is there any type of mistreatment, misvalue, any type of uh, prejudice-type feelings towards others that when we align it with the gospel, it doesn't align? Uh, and, and so I challenged us last week to examine our hearts because the church's purpose all through the New Testament yeah, the, the, the description there is that we tear down these dividing walls so that God's glory is expanded to all peoples. I mean, we've been saying this because God's made every single person from one human ancestor. So we all come from the same source. Uh, we're all made in the image of God. Uh, we even talked about the fact that uh, that there can be racial unity in the midst of, of dating and marriage, that that's not prohibited for a believer, uh, that we can embrace uh, different ethnic descents coming together into the covenant of marriage, uh, that ultimately when Israel was prohibited from doing that with other nations, it was not based on skin color or cultural differences. Specifically, it was tied to the, the uh, different gods that were being worshipped uh, and the, the destructive spiritual consequences of intermarrying. And so we said last week that if you've got two individuals who are in unity around that common purpose of worshiping the same God, that skin color doesn't need to separate their desire to be married together. Um, and so uh, just seeing that the value and the uh, deserved treatment being based on the image of God, we've been emphasizing over and over uh, last week. And then kind of concluding with the idea, do my, do my actions say true things about the gospel in regards to this topic? And so that brings us today to uh, part three in our series, the hope of racial reconciliation, the hope of racial reconciliation. So our summary sentence, so I'm trying to package everything that we're going to talk about today into one sentence, give that to you up front. So our summary sentence for today, the ethnic separation we experience today, the ethnic separation that we experience today is a temporary division. Okay, so we can all agree that there is ethnic separation. We're going to see in Genesis chapter 10 that that's on purpose, that there is separation between the nations. There are cultural differences. So as much as we are alike in that we are created in the image of God, there are differences. We are not the same culturally. We don't speak the same language as everybody on the earth. 
we ha- we have differences. Okay, so the ethnic divi- the ex- ethnic separation we experience today is a temporary division by God's grace. So we're going to see that the differences that we do observe in others, cultural differences, language differences, that they are designed by God's grace. We're going to see how that fits into the story today. The fact that we don't all speak the same language is a good gift from God right now. And we're going to see why that's the case. Okay, so it's a temporary division by God's grace so that ultimately mankind so that ultimately mankind may be united once again. So the ethnic separation we experience today is a temporary division by God's grace so that ultimately mankind may be united once again with a common language and purpose. The ethnic separation we experience today is a temporary division by God's grace so that ultimately mankind may be united once again with a common language and purpose. I think we have everything needed. We've got internet. Oh, if you need internet today, so if you've got note-taking apps, uh, our internet is ATT120. That's the, the network. And then the password. Oh, everybody. Uh, the password is anchor down. Um, easy to remember. Um, we've got everything in place, I think, now to where uh, we're hopefully going to have our TV mounted. Uh, we're going to have the Apple TV hooked up so that I can mirror what's going on with my notes onto the screen so that you can see that and, and make copies where you want to, things that stand out to you. So that should be coming here really, really soon. Um, so that's where we're going today. The ethnic separation, it's temporary. It's a good thing. So our separation, the, the differences that exist are good. It's designed by God for good purposes. It's temporary because ultimately at the end of days, God is going to reunite nations. We saw this last week. There, there will be eternal unity. There will be nations, people, individuals from all tribes, nations, and tongues that spend eternity separated from God. And they'll be confined together. And there will be others that from, that come from every tribe, nation, and tongue that are united around the common goal of the gospel. They've been reconciled to God and they will spend eternity with Christ. So it's a temporary division. Long term, we will be united once again with a common language and purpose. All right, as we get into Genesis 10 and 11, a couple things that I think are important to note right off the bat. Uh, Genesis chapter 11 most likely happens uh, before Genesis chapter 10, or at least most of Genesis 10. So they're out of order chronologically. Similar to what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 in that Genesis 1 gives us kind of the whole picture of creation. And then Genesis 2 kind of goes back and gives us some further detail about creation. So Genesis 2 doesn't happen after everything in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 should be read back into Genesis 1. We saw that. Same thing here. Genesis 10 is the disbursement of nations. Well, the reason that we have the disbursement of nations is because of what happens at the beginning of Genesis chapter 11. So some of that needs to be read back into Genesis chapter 10. So we're going to see that together today. Um, And then the, the historical accuracy of what's contained here. So this chapter is known as the table of nations. Uh, The table of nations, because this is uh, a lot of our historical understanding of the things that we find in archaeology can be traced to this passage. And there's a lot of historical accuracy 
that flows out of this passage that reinforces our concept and understanding that God's word is accurate and true and authoritative. Uh, so there's a lot of historical accuracy here. Now, we're not going to go into that today. Uh, this That would be more for a, a breakout session or some type of, of college class where we would look at that. But I want you to know that that's there. It's something that you may want to look at on your own personally, uh, some of the historical accuracy that flows from Genesis chapter 10. But it does reinforce our understanding of the authority of God's word. So as we look at Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, we could also call it the dispersion. Uh, chapter 10 here is a historical genealogy of the three major branches of the human race. So we're looking at Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their descendants and how their descendants grow into people groups and nations. Okay? And if I didn't believe God's word was authoritative, we wouldn't read it. But because I believe God's word is authoritative, we are going to read through Genesis chapter 10 and all of these difficult names. Uh, so let's start reading here in verse 1. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medea, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripath, and Togomar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Hittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. So we're talking about different languages. That's where we're saying Genesis 11 has to be read back into this. This didn't happen and then the Tower of Babel. This happens because of the Tower of Babel. Verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Saba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Septeca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kela, and Resen. Between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, and Casluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and captorhim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heath, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Hashem also, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber understood to be the father of the Hebrew people, and that's where the name comes from. The elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gaither, and Mash. Arpachshed fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelep, Hazarmapheth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, 
Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So essentially, this chapter tells us how the world was populated again after the great flood. And God oversaw this process. Okay, this wasn't just by chance. This didn't just happen. Uh, This is something that God oversaw. We know this from Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 32. The places that these people go are designed by God. Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. This is something that God oversees. We see this uh, same idea echoed. We saw it last week in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. This is something that God oversaw. He oversaw this. His, his dividing of the nations and where they relocate, all designed by God. And it flows out of the prophecy by Noah. You'll remember Noah prophesied that Japheth's descendants would expand and would be enlarged. That Ham, uh, his specific, the specific inf- instruction that we get about his uh, relationship directly to Canaan. And the curse that's upon Canaan's descendants. And then Shem and, and his descendants being... Uh, specially tied to God spiritually. And we know that, that Abraham comes from Shem, and so we see that prophecy being fulfilled with God directly revealing things to Abraham. Ultimately, Noah's prophecy was based on discerning the traits of his sons and determining the attributes of their descendants. So it's not that Noah prophesied these things and then it happened because he prophesied it. It was more Noah determining, these are who my sons are. And they're going to teach their sons to be just like them. So like father, like son, his prophecy comes true. He sees some of these attributes and characteristics in his boys and is able to anticipate what will happen down the road. Canaan's descendants, you'll remember, uh, cursed by God because of the sin of Ham. You'll remember that the sin of Ham was tied to the nakedness of Noah. It's probably worth pointing out in Leviticus 18, kind of looking at the prophecy being fulfilled in Leviticus 18, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So remember, Moses writes Genesis. He writes about the the Canaanite people because Israel is about to encounter the Canaanite people. So that curse of Canaan is highlighted. God tells his people here in in, um, Leviticus, don't live like the Egyptians and don't live like the Canaanite people. Both the Egyptians and the Canaanites descend from Canaan, descend from Ham. Okay? Well, what does that mean? Don't live like these people. Well, if you go down to verse uh, 6, we won't take time to read this, but if you read from 6 to 23, there's a common word that pops up 
24 times. And the word is nakedness. The sin of Ham, surrounded by the nakedness of his father and whatever took place there, and we speculated as to what the sin actually was. But his descendants follow in that line. And that concept becomes a stumbling block for both the people of Egypt and the people of Canaan. And there are specific regulations laid out here in Leviticus for the children of Israel. God doesn't just say, don't live like these people. He goes one step further and says, by that I mean, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And 24 times it's related to that aspect of purity. Noah looked out and said, this is my son and this is who he is. And this is a characteristic of him, and he will most likely reproduce this characteristic in others. And we see that play out. We see Noah's prophecy fulfilled. Number one here in your notes under the table of nations. Number one, God makes universal provision for all men. That's something that certainly flows from this chapter. God makes universal provision for all men. It's what we call common grace. Common grace is extended to all these nations. What do we mean by that? We mean that God gives them what they need to survive and to thrive. These nations grow, they expand, they build, they conquer. Things that can only come because God gives them the grace and the provision to do so, right? It's not just the the Hebrews, it's not just the Israelite crops that grow. God allows the earth to respond to all these nations and their crops being planted and harvested. All of these nations have water provided to them. All these nations are able to determine the resources of the land. We're going to see here momentarily. They're able to, to discern that mud can be baked and created into brick. That certain elements can be used to, to bind those bricks together to build structures. It's common grace. God is a God of grace, not just to those that he saves, but to all mankind. All mankind receives God's grace in some form. All of these nations, these list of people that grow and thrive, even the gift of life to these sinful people is an element of grace here. So it's a truth that flows as we continue to look at Genesis from an origin standpoint. What we understand about God, a lot of our understanding flows from the book of Genesis. One aspect of that is that God is a gracious God and he gives grace to all those that are on the earth in some form or fashion. As Jephthah, Ham, and, and Shem and their descendants grow, uh, if we want to try to categorize this uh, in some senses, Japheth's descendants seem to head towards Europe and India and Russia. So a lot of these people groups could be traced to those areas on a map. Europe, uh, Russia, uh, and the India area. Okay, That's where, where a lot of them seem to, to migrate to. When it comes to Ham, we're talking about Egypt, Ethiopia, Ethiopia, the continent of Africa, uh, a lot of Asia, a lot of the, the Asian countries could trace their, their lineage back to Ham, uh, as well as the American Indians. And then most of Shem's descendants lingering right there in the Middle East, uh, right there near the promised land. Much of Shem's descendants could be traced there. And so that gives you kind of an idea of, of all these people groups and where they're where they're relocating. Um, a lot of these people groups' names obviously aren't still around today, uh, but the countries and the people groups that we do have today tracing their history uh, in those areas to these, uh, to these uh, sons of Noah. Secondly, so God makes universal provision. Secondly, mankind spreads out based on common unity and diversity. So mankind spreads out 
So, you know, we, we talk about how we're not all that different from others, and yet it's the very differences that are there that dictated where people went. It dictated where people went. People are divided here in Genesis 10. And they are divided based on, based on ethnicity, language, and politics. These, these governments that are set up, they separate them from those that are, that are not part of this people group. Uh, and these differences lead to geo, geographical differences now. They are relocating to different places based on their unity. So they, they basically, after the Tower of Babel, begin to gather with those that are like, like them, like each other. So all the, the people that are alike start to migrate together. So while we're all created in the image of God, there did come a point where everybody looked around and said, okay, you look like me, you talk like me, we're going to live together. And we're going to relocate together. And it's through that that we really start to see a lot of the uh, the genetic differences that we can visually recognize in others. Uh, you'll remember we talked a little bit about this, and I'm non-authoritative on this, so just based on my general readings, we talked about Adam and Eve and the people early in creation possessing all of the genetic structure, uh, having all the capability of the things that we see that separate us from a physical standpoint, and then those things becoming more dominant as people reproduced. Well, when family groups here after the flood isolate themselves and then begin to intermarry once again as family members, so these people groups aren't typically mixing together anymore. They're now marrying within their families. Those dominant genes really start to become dominant, and that's where we're going to start to see separation in skin color, facial features. Those distinctions really start to take off after people start to spread out because now they're intermarrying once again with their families, but we're, we're further away from the original copy, and so that copy of a copy of a copy is starting to, to look different now. Um, so we see some of those changes. Uh, as best as I can relay that, uh, based on my limited understanding of, of science and, and, and those type of things. I mean, that gives you a little bit of idea of why we do visibly look different uh, from other people around the world. Um, number three, God is concerned for the nation. So universal grace, universal provision for all men. Mankind spreads out based on the differences. And then number three, God is concerned for the nations. He disperses the nations with a plan to bless the nations. So what we're going to see with the Tower of Babel is that while God spreads people out, the intent is never for them to stay spread out. The grace of this story, and we don't get it yet, but the grace of this story we find in Genesis chapter 12 when God goes looking for Abraham and he calls Abraham and communicates to Abraham, you will be a blessing to all nations. So what we have here is a is a universal rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. A universal rebellion that honestly would have warranted a flood had God chosen to. He could have easily given a flood had he not promised to not do it. Could have easily uh, created another flood in response to this rebellion. But instead we have God dispersing them. And then ultimately, Genesis chapter 12 is not a complete break in the story. It's not that we're moving now story to story to story as though they're completely disconnected. Abraham is completely connected to what happens in 11 with the Tower of Babel. Because all the nations are dispersed, the question, if you're reading through Genesis for the very first time, is, well, what happens now? Everyone's spread out. Everyone's doing their own thing. 
will there ever be unity again? And God comes on the scene and communicates to Abraham and says, absolutely, you're going to be the tool that I use to bless all nations. And that's the grace that flows from man's rebellion. God doesn't respond in a way that he could have. Instead, he responds with a gracious plan of salvation. Psalm chapter 67. Uh, a passage that one of John Piper's books is actually titled after. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. God has always been concerned about the nations. He divides them. He spreads them out with the intent to bring them back through salvation. We all come from the same family. We're all separated by our similarities. And we all stand in divine judgment or cursing in the future. God will always operate within the, the nations that he's divided. All nations will give an account to him in the future. We also see God creating a multitude from one family. So God creates a multitude from one family. He then looks into that multitude and calls out one family, calls out Abraham and his family, so that he can then create another multitude. His people, people that come from every one of these multitude of nations. Before we move into Genesis 11, it's worth noting uh, this individual who is highlighted, Nimrod, in Genesis chapter 10. Nimrod is, is described as a mighty man. Um, see, it says uh, in verse 9, or verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Uh, and then it lists off, we've already read this once, we don't have to do it again. Um, lists off the other areas that he goes to and the other cities that he builds. Um, so he's a mighty man. He's a, he's a leader. Uh, we could easily read it and think that he's a good guy. It says a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, but some of the language there would actually indicate otherwise that, uh, especially in the naming of, of, of himself, his name means let us rebel. Uh, most commentators would say that Nimrod is the embodiment of the Babel mindset that we see in, in Genesis chapter 11. In fact, most would say that he's the leader. He's the organizer of the plans in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. That he's a mighty man. He's a, he's a global ruler. Uh, that he possesses character traits that draw other men to him. Um, and that he's got a purpose and a scheme that he is now formulating with all of his abilities and gifts that he has. Um, it's also been speculated through some of the, the archaeological finds that his wife may have actually been the one who introduced the concept of idolatry. Uh, the picture that we seem to get here is, is much the same picture that we see in Second Thessalonians. Uh, the next time that we see someone who seems to have global-type influence, the lawless one, Nimrod means let us rebel. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 4 also points us to an individual 
uh, who will seek to rebel against God. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This this idea, this picture potentially of a, of a future leader that will be able to lead others into lawlessness and lead others astray. Nimrod seems to possess some of those same attributes. Uh, probably the main reason that I would that I would lean towards him being the initiator of the Tower of Babel. Uh, we see in verse one of chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. We learn from Genesis chapter 10 that this is Nimrod's territory. It says in verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calne in the land of Shinar. These people that come, they settle here, and it seems to be where Nimrod's activity is taking place. Which leads us to our second point today, the Tower of Babel, or the cause of the dispersion. They settle here in Shinar, and it says in verse 3, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. There's a lot of let's go up and let's go down in this passage. Um, and it's a literary tool that's being used here. But you have the, the, the men saying, let us do this. Let us do this. Let us do this. And then God says, let us do this. Um, so there's a response to man's plans that take place here uh, in chapter 11. So number one here under this section, uh, let's go up, the people say. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone. Come, let us build ourselves a city, tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Number one, let's go up. This is man's sin issue. Mankind is sinfully united in both a common language and a common purpose here. Notice that the Bible doesn't highlight skin color here. It's not that they are united because they come from the same ethnic group. They are united because of their language. They are united because not only do they speak the same language, they are using the language for the same purpose. They're saying the same things in the midst of that common language. So it's not just that you have a group of people that that speak the same language. You have a group of people that speak the same language, but they have a common goal. They're saying the same things. They have the same desires. 
They, they, they corporatively want to, want to go against God here. They corporatively want to rebel against God's commands to spread out. They come together united, common language, common purpose. There's rebellion tied here. These people say, let's make bricks and a city. So they discover a, a, a way to, to manipulate the earth's resources to begin to construct buildings. Let's make bricks in a city. The intent is to settle. And it's not that building cities would have been wrong. It's not that when God told Noah's family to spread out that the intent was them for to always live in a tent. That, that was not what his goal was. It wasn't that God prohibited technology. It never meant that God prohibited the, uh, the construction of buildings. The motive here is what's concerning. It's not that these people settled in a place and built a city. It's that they did so with the intent and motive to not spread out. It says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's no plans to spread out. And their motive here is, is both pride and fear. Pride and fear. There's pride here because they say, let's make a name for ourselves. There's fear here. Let's not be scattered as though being scattered would potentially bring danger to them. Even though the Lord of the universe who has created everything has mandated that they spread out. Their response to that is, hey, let's stay together. It's dangerous out here. There may have been a shortage of food in comparison to prior to the flood for the animals. This may have been how Nimrod even even gained some of his authority and some of his renown and recognition. He was a great hunter. Perhaps he was so skilled in this area, he provided protection from those that, that were fearful of some of the animal response now after the flood. Um, even though God has said, I put the fear of man into the animal, there's a response here that says, let's stick together, let's stay together, let's not get spread out. Let's make a name for ourselves, some pride motivation. Let's protect ourselves, some fear motivation here. There's intentional plans to avoid God's plan. A lot of us fall into the guilt of being uh, unfaithful to do some of the things that God commands, but we do so passively. We do so because we don't make intentional effort to be obedient. What you have here is some very intentional plan uh, to be disobedient. We know what God has mandated to us. Let's actually do the opposite. Let's plan to do the opposite is what this group of people formulates together. Political and spiritual unity becomes their focus of building together. Uh, they're going to build a government. They're going to build a, a civilization. They're going to do so around a, a spiritual union that we're going to see. This pride, let us make a name for ourselves. Their, their task was to make God's name great, to extend his glory, right? That was why they were to spread out. It wasn't just that God didn't want families to, to stay together. It's that he wanted his glory to extend to the ends of the earth. He didn't want civilizations to grow upward. He wanted them to grow outward. He wanted his glory to extend all over his creation. These people, in, in defiance of God's plans, say, let's go up and let's make a name of ourselves. Let's leave a, a historical understanding of what we accomplished. Um, it may have been simply that they were looking around and realized that um, people from, from before the flood didn't leave much of a legacy. Let's don't go down like those people. Let's leave some historical recognition for the things that we are able to accomplish. 
We know this is in direct contradiction to how things work from God's perspective and in God's view, Matthew twenty three twelve. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We find a man named Abraham whose name God says, I will make your name great. Abraham doesn't set out to make his name great. He doesn't set out to build a city. What does the Bible say? He says that he looks for a city that has different types of foundations, right? He's a wanderer. He never even gets to settle in the land that God promises him. Is that he's always looking to something better, something different, something spiritual. God says, I'm going to make your name great. Nimrod leads these people into a, a plan to make their name great by building, establishing, and, and avoiding God's commands upon their life. Uh, there's fear here. Let's not be scattered. Uh, there's, there's a wrong perspective. They're supposed to fill the earth, and they want to contain it locally. What was the tower specifically? Um, most likely, it's a place of worship. Uh, most likely, it's tied to uh, some of the, the ziggurats that we see in that area, uh, temples and, and, and structures that were designed for worship purposes. We know that uh, a lot of the zodiac and a lot of uh, the, the astrology uh, historically flew out of, of, out of Babylon. It grew out of Babylon. Um, so in this area of Babel, it's very likely that in reference to uh, building a structure where the tops are in the heavens, it may be more of an allusion to astrology and, and to some of the Zodiac-type worship that took place in that time. Um, most likely, these people never intended to build a structure that went to God's dwelling place in heaven. Right? We, we hear that a lot, uh, but let's give these people some credit. And none of us, with the education that we would have, would think that it would be architecturally possible to build a structure that high. Let's not just assume that the people at this time were ignorant and thought, oh, we can actually build something that could go uh, into the cosmos. Probably not. It's probably more of a, uh, a, a, um, a phrase that's being used to more communicate the spiritual connection of the tower. We want to create a, a, a structure that, that invites the gods to come to us, that, that it allows us to surround ourselves with, with the worship of these gods, um, and so it more probably more has a spiritual connotation than an actual direction of where they were wanting to go. Um, it also has been speculated that it may have been an attempt to vo- avoid a future flood, um, that they want to be prepared for the next time. That we're going to build a structure that goes so high, that goes higher than the mountains, uh, that we will avoid anything that may come that would destroy us in the future. Um Height, in my opinion, in looking at the text, height doesn't really seem to be the major motivation here. Um, when, when you look at it, they start building uh, at a minimum at sea level. You know, so if, I, if I'm thinking in terms of I want to build something to, to, to the highest point, I'm probably going to start at the highest point to save myself some time. They, they build it in a valley, right? So they can see, they can actually probably visually see other higher structures around them. So if the intent was to get high, even for protection from a flood, most likely they would have started at, at, at a higher point. So again, I think it's more of a spiritual uh, connotation here as to why they're building it and the reference to the heavens here. Uh, Babylon is also the focal point of false religion in the Bible. Uh, the Bible always seems to relay Babylon as being the source for idolatry. Babylon is always used synonymously with pride, with corruption, with defiance. 
uh, wherever it's used in Scripture, it's kind of the embodiment of those things. In Revelation 17, 5, um, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Uh, Babylon never has a good connotation in Scripture. Um, And so with the tower being sourced out of the area of Babel, uh, where, where Babylon would eventually be established, uh, it's most likely that the tower and everything surrounding their motivation here is tied to a false religion. So mankind has a desire to to go up, to rebel against God's instructions. But God responds, and, and through the use of a literary device, um, verse 5, Moses in writing says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. So uh, in all their attempts to build a structure of height, uh, it still emphasizes that the Lord had to come down to actually see it, uh, to see the tower and to see the children that had built the tower. Um, this is God's gracious solution to the problem here. It says that he comes down in verse 6. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they perp- uh, that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God's response, he says, let's confound their language. So man has said, let's make bricks, let's make a name for ourselves, let's make a city, let's not be scattered. God's response is, let's confound their language. There's there's grace in this response, because I want you to understand that God looks at this and says, this is going the direction of the pre-flood people. You remember, we, we, we talked about the pre-flood people. It says that every intent of their heart was evil that violence reigned supreme on the earth, that God had to wash it clean, that every intent of man was to do wrong. God looks at them and says that they are uniting in a way because they understand each other. They speak the same language, but not only that, they're speaking the same language inwardly. Their hearts are debased and evil, and they're they're rallying around that. And God says, whatever they want to do will not be hindered that, they're, that they have the possibility of doing great evil unless the situation changes. So God essentially prevents the need for a flood. He deals with the immediate sin, but he also anticipates potential greater sin in the future. And so he deals with that too. It's not just that God needs to thwart the building of this tower. It's not that, that they were actually going to be successful in doing anything that they wanted to do. It's that God looks down and says, I'm going to prevent future sins. I'm going to prevent you from making future mistakes. I'm going to prevent you from being uh, as wicked as you possibly could be. When we talk about the concept of total depravity, we mean that, that man is incapable of being good. It doesn't mean that every individual is as bad as they can be. It just means that we're incapable of doing good before God, that, that our righteousness is, is not righteous, that our good works are not good. But we're still capable from a man perspective of doing a lot of good things. But God says, as long as this exists where mankind can be united in this way, it can only produce the maximum amount of evil. And so God steps in and prevents that from being the case. It's also neat how, uh, and you wouldn't see this um, in, in our language, but the the word that, that, that God uses for um, for confounding their language it's actually the reverse order of letters from the, the word used for them making bricks. So, so it's basically let's build bricks. And God says, let's confound the language. And it's also 
the, the way it would be written in the original language, it's a reversal of the brick making, basically. Let's, let's tear down what they have built by confounding their language, by changing uh, the words that they're able to speak with each other. This is real similar to what God does in Genesis 3. You'll remember that, that God looks down and says, okay, Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree. They now possess knowledge of good and evil. If they eat of the tree of life, then they'll be in this condition for eternity. So God removes them. He disperses them away from the tree of life to protect them, right? So he deals with the sin, but he also deals with the potential future uh, tragedy of them eating of the tree of life. And he says, I'm going to get you away from this. God looks down and says, okay, this is evil. Your mindset's evil. I'm going to get you away from each other to prevent more evil from happening. So it's God's grace. It's not, it's a form of punishment, but there's grace in the punishment. He says, you're not going to speak the same language anymore. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for you because you're capable of a lot of evil when you can communicate with everybody. And so God confounds their language. God forces man to do what he had commanded already. Forces them to spread out. God scatters them rather than destroying them. It's also God's grace. He could have killed everyone at the Tower of Babel. Instead, he lets them spread out and scatter. He gives them the opportunity to live and return to him. Okay, so so that's the narrative. That's the narrative. Chapter 10, the disbursement of the nations. Chapter 11, the why. Why were the nations dispersed? Why did Noah's family spread out? And not just spread out, because if they had just spread out, they would they, we wouldn't have different nations and people groups. We would have we would have had a common a common language, a common people group. They spread out. There's there's differences. There's cultural differences, ethnic differences, language differences. Why? Chapter eleven explains that to us. Man rebelled. God responded, and in His response, it's 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 laced with grace. He doesn't allow them to just. Uh, to just do what they want to do. He guards and protects and limits man's sin, forces them to spread out. That's the narrative. But for our application today, and this is this is where it's important for us as individuals. It's important for us as we teach others, as we teach our children, as we disciple others, this understanding of, of how Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, points to a reconciliation in the future. The application, the events of Genesis 11, Point to the reconciled events of, and then I'm going to give you some scripture references to write down. The events of Genesis 11 point to the reconciled events of Zephaniah 3 verse 8 through 13. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. I mean, this points to the second coming of Christ. This points to the second coming of Christ. But in verse 9 it says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From the, from the beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones 
And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave you, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall, ga- they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This points to a future where people from other nations are gathered together to speak a common spiritual language. Maybe we all end up speaking the same language down the road. I don't know. But we begin to speak the same spiritual language. We begin to say the same things, even if it is in a different tongue. We speak the same things. We're united for the same purpose. We see this in Galatians chapter 3 as well. A future hope of racial reconciliation where people from all nations coming together. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. And then we see this, this glimpse even brighter in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm, palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Revelation fifteen four. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven, was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke. Sorry, wrong verse. That's a good verse, though. Um, verse four, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. We get a glimpse of this at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, right? When the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and, and God had ordained it where people from other nations were in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover. They're worshiping, they're celebrating their Jewish people that speak a different language because they had been dispersed, uh, through some of the captivity issues in the Old Testament. But they had come home to Jerusalem to worship around the Old Testament system. Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. They begin to speak in languages, speak in tongues. Everybody can hear what they're saying in their language. They get saved. 3,000 people. And what do they do? They start to go back home. And they start to communicate the gospel back home to other languages. And it's a small glimpse of what's coming. People from other ethnic groups, people from other cultures coming together. Common language, maybe a spiritual language. Maybe an actual language, but they come together around a common language. And just like the people at Babel, not only was their language consistent, but their purpose was consistent. This this rallying of people from other nations come with that same purpose in mind as well. The glory of God based on the gospel, the salvation that they've experienced. And this is the hope that we have, the hope that we have that there will be a day. When we will be brought back, despite the divisions that God has graciously given us. We'll be brought back together despite all of our differences to worship Christ together. And that's why we said last week we want our church to be a diverse church. And that may take some intentional effort on our part 
Not to passively sit back and say, hey, if a Hispanic person comes to our church, we'd love that. If an African-American person came to our church, we'd love that. But to intentionally go and seek diversity as a component of our church's ministry. Why? Not just because we want to be politically correct, but we want to be a church that can reach anybody. And we want to be an accurate picture of what the church is going to be for all eternity. A church that is mixed from people from all nations, tribes, and tongues. And we do live in a community where that's possible, right? We may be exposed mainly to people that share our same skin color. But by all means, we can look into the school systems and see that these children come from from homes and families that represent other groups of people. And so it's possible for our church to be diverse. It should be something that we desire, something that we pray for as a church. Because it's a picture of what's coming for all eternity. Which kind of leaves me with the last question for us today. What are we striving to build? What are we striving to build? Personally, as a church, what are we striving to build? You have a people group here in Babel that say, you know what? Let's put all of our eggs in this basket. Let's build something for the here and now. Let's, let's, Let's invest our resources, our time, and our energy to build a structure that makes our name great. Let's don't spread out. Let's don't, let's don't break ties. Let's all stay right here and let's all build something really big and awesome. And let's get a lot of glory for it. Or do we look at it and say, you know what? God's building something that looks distinctly different than that. God's building something that's spiritual, that's eternal, that includes a lot of people from a lot of different places. Right. We could easily just say, you know what, as a church, we're going to stay right here and we're going to minister to people that that are like us. And we'll meet up with those other people on that day of glory. And then we'll appreciate racial diversity. And, hey, great, you guys come from a different nation. Great. We're all here together. Or we can say, you know what, let's be a part of that reconciliation. Let's be a part of tearing down those dividing walls. Let's be a people that say, you know what, we don't have to stay right here. We, we can move overseas. We, we can go plant Sovereign Hope International. We can, we can go plant a church in Uganda for the intentional effort to bring people that are not like us into the kingdom of Christ because that is what God desires, for his name to be made great amongst all nations, not just this nation, not just people like us, but all peoples. The Tower of Babel is a story that needs to be taught to our children because it helps them understand their life's purpose. That when they look, when they go to the grocery store and see people that don't look like them, to be able to relate to them, son, daughter, this is why. This is why. Because man rebelled against God. And to protect us from ourselves, to protect our sinful unity, God had to divide us and spread us out. But my hope and desire is that we can walk down the street And see another individual that may look drastically different than us, may dress drastically different than us, may listen to music that's drastically different than us. But look past those things and say, okay, that's a result of God having to protect us from each other. And so cultures and and differences were, were developed because of our sin. I'm looking past that. I'm seeing a, a, a man or a woman that's created in the image of God, a man or a woman that God desires to bring back to him. Whether we dress differently uh, in eternity, I don't know. But that we can stand with people that look different, act different, behave different on some levels. 
but we can be united around a common goal, a common desire, a common hope that rests in Jesus Christ. That's my desire for us as a church in the here and now, that we can begin to enact some of that now and not wait for eternity. That we can pray for these things and intentionally desire these things through how we minister so that we can see that racial reconciliation happen now versus it happening later only when Jesus comes back. That we can start to get a taste of it now. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have explained to us here in Genesis 10 and 11 why we have differences in our culture today. God, we, we can understand and know and see why from a visible perspective people look different than us. Their facial features may be different. Their skin color may be different. Their culture may be different. Their dress may be different. What they value may be different. God, we, we can look and see people that represent other cultures, and we know there's differences. And God, we don't want to, uh, to try to, to remove those differences. God, we're thankful for the differences. As we, as we look into your word, we can see and be thankful that when we see people of other skin color, we know that's a result of the disbursement of nations, and we can know and see that you did that to protect us from each other. You did that to protect us from being the wicked, evil people that would be, be possible if we were able to unite in that way. God, we're thankful that, that cultural differences, that language differences, keep us divided right now because we know ultimately it protects us. But God, we long for the day. We long for the day when not only do you unite us in language, you unite us in heart. God, we long for the day when, when you don't just confound languages and reunite languages, but when you, when you take stone hearts and you put clay hearts in there, hearts that can be molded. God, we long for the day when, when we can stand with others from other cultures. And despite all the differences that have been created because of our dispersion, we can all come back home to you. God, you, you, you created us from, from a man and a woman. You created us from one family. God, I pray that you'd give us a greater appreciation for those around us, recognizing that a person's value and how we should treat them should always be tied to the fact that they are created in God's image and not to the ancestor that they descend from. God, help us to have wisdom to know how to teach our children to appreciate and to love those that are different than them. They grew up somewhere different. They grew up with, with a different cultural mindset, potentially. But God, how we treat them should not be affected by that. God, help us to appreciate the differences, but God, help us to long, to long for the similarities to be united again. God, help us to read Revelation with anticipation. But God, help us to be very active in the here and now to start to bring some of those things into, into reality. God, we ask for these things. We pray for these things. We pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us with our hopes and desires to plant a church in Uganda. God, I pray that details and specifics would get worked out according to your timing, according to your will. That you would call people from our church that would say,
I'm willing to separate. I'm willing to spread out. The glory of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.